Is God bigger, better, stronger than any problem you're facing today? Anybody think that's true? Wow. Thank you, Pastor Ricky, for choir, for leading us into that presence, and I pray that, that you'll hear that message. Powerful song, but hear the message. Let it sink into your heart today. Before we get into message time, just a quick uh, announcement. Some really, 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 did I say really, really dear friends of ours are in the church this morning. Carlos and Raquel Hernandez, right over here. Come on, stand, guys. Don't be shy. Everybody say, hey, Carlos. Hey, Raquel. Thank you, guys. Carlos and Raquel are the Extra Network missionaries to El Salvador and Central America. They do a phenomenal job of ministering mostly to pastors and, and church leaders. I think there's about 300-plus pastors that are in their network, and we have the privilege of having been a part of getting that ministry going as well. And, and so just dear, dear friends, spend a lot of time together. Hope to spend a lot more time together in the days ahead. They're going to be in the lobby after the service, and so stop by and say, hey, you support them every month. And so thank you for your help as you give and uh, you're a part of what God is doing in Central America as well. It's exciting times at the bridge. Uh, those of you that were part of the vision gatherings this past week, I know you're as excited as I am. Hundreds of our people came together on Wednesday and Thursday night. If you missed it by, ch by chance and several of you said, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm out of town, there are packets in the lobby, the video of the, of the vision gathering. Uh, there's a link for that in that packet. Stop by the guest services desk on your way out. They'll put a packet in your hands so you can be aware of what's going on as we continue in our series that we're calling Building for the Generations. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about the powerful things that happen in a church when God's people rally around God's vision and they come into unity. And the moment they come into unity, the Bible says the Holy Spirit is released to make up the difference between what they're capable of and what the need calls on them for. And so he empowers their efforts beyond what any individual can do or even beyond what they collectively as a group can do to make a difference in this world. Understand that unity now is not just the absence of conflict. Oh, we're a unified group. We, we get along fine. Unity is not the absence of conflict. That might be a ceasefire. I mean, that's not necessarily uh, unity. Unity is the presence of agreement. Unity is when we have decided the sheet of music we're going to play from and we're all playing in the same harmony. We're playing those, not the same notes because each one of us plays a different instrument according to the gifts that God has given us, but we are playing in harmony with one another. And I'm just going to be honest with you and say in my experience over the years, the most tangible expression of agreement, the most tangible expression of unity in the church is when we give. That's the expression that says, I really do believe that God is at work. And that's why on November 14th, we've moved what has uh, annually been our offering fit for a king in early October. We've moved it to November 14th so that you could hear the vision. Again, if you miss the vision gatherings, stop by, pick up a packet, watch that video. You'll pick it up. You'll understand what's going on. But on November 14th, we're going to bring an offering. And, uh, and we believe that God's going to do powerful things. This year, because the offering involves uh, uh, construction, the vision involves construction specifically for our kids and, and our teenagers as well as outreach kinds of things, we're asking you to add to the annual offering uh, a 36-month faith promise. You're going to say, God, here's what I'm trusting you to give through me over the next 36 months, and I'll ask you on that day to bring your gifts in. Our children will be here with their coin bricks, and, 
Uh, and they'll be presenting their offering. You that have kids and bridge kids, if you've seen those little cardboard bricks, fill them up, okay? Give them something to jangle, jangle, jangle. And you don't all, all, only have to put coins in there. You can put silent money in there too, you know, like, like, like paper and big checks and stuff like that you put in there. Because here's what's going to happen. Every dollar that our children give is going to be used in some project in Bridge Kids. And it'll be, say, given by the kids of Bridge Kids Ministries. And so uh, that, it's important for them to feel a part of this. This is a family gathering. So let me encourage you to make plans now, November 14th. And I'll let you in on a little secret that hasn't gone public. I'm actually going to sing a solo that day. So if you want to hear it, come. If you don't want to hear it, then don't come. Don't watch online. But uh, I'm going to sing that day first time since I've been at the bridge. So uh, let me just be personal with you. We'll get into message time. Kim and I are considering this uh, to be what is probably the last big uh, campaign like this of our 50 years of ministry. And we're considering this to be our legacy. And so we're leaning in. We're really praying. We've had a lot of conversations and we've been praying separately and talking together, praying together about what God would do through us for this campaign. And I'm asking you simply to join us. In fact, I'm praying for a miraculous outpouring of both unity and generosity when we come together on November 14th. And I'm asking you to bring your commitment that day. And we're saying equal sacrifice, not equal gifts. Not everybody can give the same amount. But I really, 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 you'll hear me say it today. You'll hear me say it next week. You'll hear me say it again November 14th. I really, really, really want you to be a part, whatever level of faith you have. Because when, when the joy kicks off, and it will, I want you to be a part of that joy. I don't want you to be on the outside looking in. I want you to be a part of it. So plan now to be a part of it. That's why I'm being so bold about it. Because the emerging generation needs us to invest in them but also because I want you to be a part of the awesome things that are coming. So let's get into message time. What we've been doing throughout this series is we've been talking about the core values that define us as a church and bring us together as a church. I've said a couple of times during the series uh, that I love America. Uh, I'm proud to be an American, but let's be honest, there's been a huge slide in morality in our nation in recent years. I've got one yes. It's true, isn't there? And so if there's ever been a time when we as a nation need biblical values, it's now. But not just for us. Our emerging generation needs biblical values, and so it's important that we rehearse those values. Maybe learn them. I don't know, but make sure that we know what those values are from Scripture and that we're living by those values. So if you miss any of the messages in the series, go to the website and get them and just let the, the Word of God absorb into your heart. Let's rehearse them quickly. Uh, and then we're going to dig into one of them today. The first value, of course, the overarching of all of them is, you want to say it or you want me to? It is live biblically. The Bible is the final authority in everything we believe and every way we behave. Then we talk about loving unconditionally. Then we talk about serving unselfishly. Last week we talked about relating sincerely. Next week we'll talk about worship passionately. Uh, we'll end on reaching globally, but today we're talking about growing intentionally. Let's unpack that core value, and then I'm going to get into it in detail, okay? I think it's on the screens. Can we read it together? Here we go. One, two, three, go. We believe that every man, woman, and child needs the spiritual and relational support of being a part of a church family. Does anybody here believe that? I've got a lot of yeses over here. You guys pick it up a little bit, okay? As long as there's one person who needs Jesus... And a church home, 
we will what? We will strive to grow. We will not be embarrassed about being a growing church. We will not apologize for being a growing church. We won't shy from what, any criticism that comes off about being growing a church. Why? Because every number has a name and every name has an eternity. And there are thousands of people who desperately need Jesus all around us. And that value comes straight from our leader, our Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. Comes out of an exchange between Jesus and Peter. Matthew chapter 16, verses 16 and 18. Here it goes. Peter answered, Jesus having asked the question, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So, who's the Messiah, the Savior of the world? You want to say his name or you want me to? It's Jesus. Say it with me. Jesus. There's something about that name. Jesus. Who's the Messiah of the world? Jesus. Whose job is it to build the church? Say his name. Jesus. Who can stop that from happening? Nobody. Not the gates of Hades itself. But it begs the question, then what's our job? If it's his job to be the Savior and it's his job to build the church and nobody can stop him from building the church, then what exactly is our job? The answer comes from Jesus as well when he gave his final instructions for us before he ascended to the Father to prepare heaven for us. It's found in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We'll look at this passage in more detail in a couple of weeks. But for now, here's what I want you to read. We will receive, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So again, the question is, what's our job? It's not to build the church. That's Jesus' job. It is to be the church and to be a witness to the world, to the those who are not yet part of the body of Christ, not yet part of the church, to be witnesses to the world of what a relationship with Jesus looks like. That's our job. Now, here's how Paul put it in his letter to the church at Rome. Romans chapter 10, verse 13, 14. Let's read it together, okay? Here we go. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless somebody tells them? How will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That's why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. Everybody follow the sequence of that? He laid it out pretty succinctly, didn't he? So, so who can be saved? Hello, you don't think I'm doing all the talking today, do you? Who can be saved? Whosoever will. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. Jesus said, whosoever will may come, but there is a qualifier. They actually have to call on him. They have to ask him. Now, here's the problem. They won't ask to be saved unless they believe they can be saved. Does that make sense? And they can't believe unless they hear it from somebody who has been, right? And the only way they will hear is if that person who brings good news is actually living good news. I mean, come on, guys. If there was a cure for cancer and nobody told it, would that be a tragedy? Yeah, somebody say yes. So who is the someone that he's talking about 
that's sent to go, to go be the ones who are the witnesses. Who are they? Somebody say, we are. Look at somebody and say, he's talking about you. Come on, look at him. He's talking about you. Look at somebody else and say, he's talking about you. Look at somebody else and say, he's talking about us. We are the church of beautiful feet. Come on. Now, that's no surprise to anybody in this room. I hope not too many of you out there watching online have been surprised by anything I've said before, but let's, can we just be honest? It may well be the scariest thing we do as followers of Jesus Christ to share our faith with someone who doesn't yet believe, which is why statistically a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of Christians actually accept the mantle of being these beautiful feet witnesses. So I want to spend our time this morning not so much on convincing you you should. You know you're called by God to be the church of pretty feet. I like that. The church of pretty feet. Can we change the name instead of the bridge? The church of... <laughs> now, just a thought. Just a thought. It's amazing what you say under the anointment sometimes. But anyway... <laughs> Can we be the church of pretty feet? Well, yes, we can. The challenge is how. How do we do that in a way that's not so daunting, not so scary, not so overwhelming that we frankly shrink back from the challenges? So that's what I want to do this morning is just give you real practical uh, YBH as I call them. Yes, but hows. I hear you, Pastor, but how do we do it? Three simple parts to this thing. Uh, we'll rehearse them first and then I'll unpack them for you, okay? First of all, my motive has to be love. If I'm going to be successful... My motive has to be love, my message has to be good news, and my method has to be contagious faith. Say it with me. My motive is love, my message is good news, my method is contagious faith. God bless you. Thanks for coming to church. We'll see you next Sunday. Oh, you want some details? Okay, I'll give you a few. My motive, first of all, is love for God and for others. That's got to be the the compelling reason why we stretch outside our comfort zones and share our faith. Let's read 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 together. 1, 2, 3. The Lord is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but he wants everyone to come to repentance. You know what that says to me? It says to me that God never met a person he didn't love. Everybody matters to God, so everybody matters to us. Am I right? Which is why one of our core values says, as long as there's one person who needs Jesus and his church, we can't put out a no vacancy sign. We can't say, I got mine. I don't care whether you get yours or not. I got my ticket punched for heaven. I, you're on your own to get yours. We, we can't do that. We have to be the church of pretty feet, right? 1970s, uh, I remember a, uh, a young seminary student, Bible college student who told a story about traveling down the road one day and he saw a guy who was kind of dirty, disheveled looking, long stringy hair, scraggly beard, hippie freak looking dude. Some of you know those expressions. But, uh, and he had a sign that said, uh, help me. And, and the seminary student, Bible college student, uh, said his first thought that went through his mind is, yeah, I'll help you, all right. I'll get you a haircut and I'll pull that scraggly beard out of your face and make you take a bath and help you get a job. That's, that's the help you need, boy. And then one day that Bible college student read the very verses that we're looking at this morning and something 
something clicked in his heart, something shifted in his heart. And from that moment, he grasped the heart of God for that young man standing on the side of the road. In that moment, he stopped seeing his hair and his beard and, and his exterior, and he started seeing what God saw. He saw man created in the image of God for whom Jesus Christ died, a man that God gave everything, including his son, in order to have a relationship with Jesus, a man desperately in need of Jesus. And in case you're wondering who that Bible college student was, it's me. Something shifted in me that day. And if you know my life and history at all, you know that I have been driven since that day to reach everybody I can possibly reach in every way that I can possibly reach them, whether it's in the third world jungles of the Philippines or the concrete jungles of Hampton Roads, Virginia, or back home in eastern North Carolina in this amazing place, in this amazing environment. I go out every day sincerely. I go out every day saying, Lord, show me somebody today who desperately needs you and then give me the courage and the wisdom to have beautiful feet. Break my heart, Lord, over what breaks yours. Just be blunt with you and we're going to move on. If you don't let God break your heart over what breaks his, you will never have beautiful feet. You may have beautiful feet from a cosmopolitan kind of way, but not from a Jesus kind of way. So we pray, oh God, break my heart over what breaks yours. My motive for being a witness has to be love. The second part of this journey then is to make sure our message is good news. It amazes me the message that some people use to get the word across. And I've had conversations with some of these guys who stand on the street corner with, with turn or burn, die, die or fry kind of messages with a megaphone. And I ask them, you know, have you ever actually engaged anyone? Have you ever had relationship with anyone? You ever, you know, connected with somebody and they asked you what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ? And it's almost like there's a disconnect in their heads. It's almost like they go, that's not my job. My job is to pronounce it. It's up to them to do what, they, what they're going to do with it. But it gets even worse than that sometimes. I'm driving down I-95 one day, and I'm flipping dials because I'm too cheap to pay for satellite radio. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm flipping dials, and I landed, and I heard a preacher. So I stopped for a minute to listen to this preacher, and he's railing on something or other. I can't remember exactly what he said. I'm not sure it even clicked in my head what he was talking about. Here's what I heard him say, though. All you sinners is going to hell, praise God. <laughs> Find a button to push. I don't want to hear anything else this guy's got to say. I don't know for the life of me how Christianity got there, but I'm here to tell you Jesus said our message was good news. Mark chapter 16, verse 15. Go everywhere in the world and tell all you sinners is going to hell, praise God. Is that what it says? Tell good news to everyone. Anybody here like to get good news? Anybody like to get good news? 
Anybody here like to tell good news? You got some good news you want to tell somebody? Our boys used to fight over it. You know, when I'd be off on a ministry trip somewhere, I'd come back in, and we had three boys, and they would fight over who got to tell the good news first. I want to tell him. No, I want to tell him. No, I'm going to tell him. One of them throw him down on the ground and say, I'm going to tell him. <laughs> because they love to tell good news. And so my point simply is I find myself wondering sometimes when a Christian finds it hard to share their faith with somebody who needs Jesus, I wonder if they've forgotten how good the good news is. Maybe they need to be reminded. Maybe we need to be reminded of how good the good news is. Reminded that the good news is actually great news. There's three words that come to mind as I think about the good news. Let me share them with you. Maybe you could think of some other words, but the first word I think of is fulfillment. John 10.10, Jesus said, I came to give life and that life in all its fullness. He didn't say I came to give you a religion, a bunch of rules and regulations and rituals you have to support, uh, an institution you have to manage and maintain. He said, I came to give you a satisfying, growing, fulfilling life worth living. Is that good news? Do you know anybody that needs that? Yeah. Second word that comes to mind is freedom. There, I realize some people have got some weird ideas about what freedom actually means, but there's nothing new about what you're hearing these days, quite frankly. Sadly enough, the theme songs of my generation, some of you are old enough to remember these, the big theme songs, were, were free is just another word for nothing left to lose. Or my personal favorite was, I can't get no Some of the young folks are going, those old people lost their minds. <laughs> I can't get no satisfaction. Now, here's the tragedy of that. My generation reared a generation on those values. And they have reared a generation on those values to the point that we have an emerging generation that doesn't even know good news values. Can I tell you the result from my generation? Our freedom to experiment with drugs got us chemically dependent and broken. And our freedom to experiment with sex got us AIDS and STDs and broken relationships. Our freedom, our freedom to abort babies got us an angry generation because we killed half their brothers and sisters. 63 million and counting. But can I also tell you what real freedom gets you? It's gotten me 50 years of not a single hangover. <laughs> Come on. It's gotten me deep, enduring, lifelong relationships. It's gotten me a legacy of sons and daughters, both biologically and spiritually, who, who are making a difference in the world. It's, it's, it's brought me the freedom to be who I am in Christ and not shrink back or be insecure about that. I can be stupid. I can be crazy. My brain works in weird ways sometimes. It's okay. That's how he made me. And I believe that's what Jesus meant in John chapter 8, verse 36. If the Son makes you free, you are will be Truly 
free, free to be everything God made you to be. Is that good news? Yeah. So yes, it's, it's, it's all those things, but it's also forgiveness. Romans 6, 23, we know that passage for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This good news is we get a fresh start, a clean slate. I realize as I talk about some of these things that, that, that I'm talking to some people in this room and online for whom you can't say you haven't had a hangover all these years or you can't say you haven't been chemically dependent or you can't say you haven't aborted a child. My heart breaks for you. Nobody's here to, to judge or guilt trip or beat you up. Nobody's here to put you down. We're here to say you don't have to live under the burden of that. You don't have to live under the guilt of that. You can be free. You can be forgiven and get a fresh start and a clean slate. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, you can start fresh in Jesus Christ. That's good news. Come on. That's what the good news is all about. But hear me, guys. We will not be the church of pretty feet. You will not be the follower of Jesus Christ with beautiful feet until your motive for being that witness is love and your message is that good news. But still, there's a problem. Still, there's a challenge. Okay, Pastor, I hear you. I mean, I applaud when you say those things because I agree with you. But it's still a little bit hard to kind of, you know, go out there and start telling people about Jesus. And I'm not sure I know how to, to do that. Are you going to give us some tracks and we're going to pass them out? I mean, what exactly is the method for accomplishing this in a way that, that is actually doable? And that's where that third part comes in. And that is my message or my method is contagious faith. My method is contagious faith. There's two parts to the, to the method. Let me show you what they are and I'll bring this to a close get real practical this morning, okay? First, it starts with your lifestyle. Titus chapter two, verse 10, tell everyone you can be fully trusted. Is that what it says? What does it say? It says, show that you can be fully trusted so that in every way you will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Reaching others with the good news is directly related to how you live. So I got to ask, you don't have to respond, you can sit real still, but I got to ask, if you were a follower of Jesus Christ, when was the last time your life attracted somebody to Jesus? If you can't think of one, can I respectfully suggest a checkup, a fresh start, a do your first works over again? Go back to the altar, they'll be open in a few minutes, you can do that today. Realize it or not, like it or not, people are watching. When you name the name of Jesus Christ, people are watching. And some of those people that are watching you are that close to giving their lives to Jesus Christ. They're just wondering if this good news they've heard about is real, if it's true. And they're wondering if they can see it in you. Before they make a final decision, please, please, I beg you, hear me. The stakes are high. The stakes are eternal. So live it. Live a life that makes the good news attractive. People can see it in you. But I need to be clear, this method is wrapped up in your lifestyle, but it doesn't mean you don't have to say anything. 
I, I hate it when I hear people say, well, you know, pastor, I don't have to talk about Jesus. My life speaks Jesus. People can see Jesus in me. And my response to that, even Jesus talked. There is a point. Yes, it starts with your lifestyle, but there's a point where you got to speak up. I mean, if people are going to hear, go back to our Romans passage, if people are going to hear the good news from you, then yeah, you got to live it in order to be a credible witness because actions speak louder than words, but eventually you got to say it. Can you imagine a witness in court who's just kind of smiling? And the attorney comes up and says, okay, uh, tell us what you saw. Just tell us what you experienced. Which is why a good attorney will prep a witness before they go to the stand. Because it's not unusual when you go on that stand in the pomp and circumstance and, and high uh, attention of that room for a witness to freeze. And so they prep them so that they can think through what they're going to say. Some people say they're trying to get them to say certain things. No, they're prepping them, hopefully, to tell the truth, but they still have to prep them for the pressure of that moment. Otherwise, they may freeze, and all of us have been in those places where we may well have an opportunity to tell somebody good news, but we froze. So, yeah, they have to have a, an experience in order to be a credible witness, but eventually they have to tell about their experience too, which is why the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, here we go, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Do this with gentleness and respect. So let's start from the end and work our way back. What does gentleness and respect mean? It means that you start by focusing on their needs first. It means that you reach people where they are, connect with them where they are, and then help them to get to where they need to be. That's gentleness and respect. The second question is, what are you doing with gentleness and respect? What, what does it say? You're answering all the deep theological questions they might have? You're answering the age-old question, if God is all-powerful, can he make a weight too heavy for him to lift? Or are you simply giving an answer for the hope that you have in Christ Jesus? You're simply prepared to say, you know, I don't, I'm not sure I even understand that question, much less be able to answer it, but here's what I know. This is who I was, and then I met Jesus, and this is who I'm becoming and I have a hope that the best is yet to come. I just, I just believe that I'm growing and getting better and stronger every day. You're being a witness of hope, not theological answers. People say, you know, I'm afraid they're going to ask me a question. I don't know how to answer. The only question you have to answer is, why do you hope in Jesus Christ? Remember, our motive is, hello? Hello? Love, our message is good news. Our method is live out this contagious faith. Live it so you're a credible witness and then be prepared to say, this is who I was. I met Jesus. This is who I'm becoming. So let me shift gears in closing moments. 
Let me give you three practical steps to get started. If you're not taking notes already, get your phone out, get your notepad out, go to the Bridge NC app, call it up, bring up the notes. You can write and save it to your journal. You can take your notes, but capture this. There are three things I'm gonna ask you to do very specifically, very directly, because what did we say about core values at the beginning of this series? Some of you know. So core values, we don't always get them right, but we do check up once in a while and say, how are we doing? And if, if our lifestyle doesn't line up with our life's values, what do we change? Our lifestyle. So we're going to make sure our lifestyle lines up with this life's value. And so here we go. First, list your sphere of influence. I'm going to ask you before you go to bed tonight to sit down with your tablet, your phone, a piece of paper, whatever you want to do, and write down the names of seven or eight people that you have uh, some kind of meaningful interaction with on a regular basis. Just brainstorming. I'm not talking about your coworker unless you have deep conversations with your coworker. I'm talking about people that, that you know, that they know you, they trust you. If they have, have a question, they'd like to come to you for advice. People that you have influence in their lives. Write down a list of those people. Just pick seven or eight names and write them down, okay? When you've finished writing that list, go back, step back, look at the list, scan the list, and identify who from that list already has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and who from that list are you not sure whether they do or not, okay? So you're breaking that list into two. Now, here's the challenge. For many of us, once we've been saved for a few years, there ain't nobody on that list that doesn't already know Jesus. We spend all our time with Christians. If we need a plumber, we call a Christian plumber. If we need an electrician, we say, anybody in the church that does electricity? I mean, we don't know any unsaved people, and so we have to get very intentional. We have to pray for the Lord to give us people that we can put in that list, and we get intentional about doing that kind of stuff. I've told you before, and I'll, I, I, what I've done in the past, and I'll do it here. Uh, you know, I love to play golf. I don't get to play very often, but, but if you'll find uh, if you'll finish out the foursome between you and me and, uh, and, and find the other two and at least one of them is an unsaved person and I get to ride in the cart with them, I'll play golf with you anytime you tell me, let's go. Why? Because I'm going to spend about three hours in a golf cart with an unsaved person and before it's over, they're going to ask me a question that's going to give me an opportunity to give an answer for the hope that is in me. That's how intentional I have to get because I spend all my time. I hope all of our staff is saved. I think all of our staff is saved. Okay, so you build the list, all right? Identify at least somebody in that list that doesn't already know Jesus. If you don't have anybody, then go find some people. Build a trust relationship. And when you find them, show that you can be trusted and tell them gently and respectfully the good news. The second challenge then is build a bridge. By listening and caring. Hear me, guys. Everybody's hurting somewhere. Let me say that again. Everybody's hurting somewhere. Say it with me. Everybody's hurting somewhere. You listen long enough, they will eventually tell you where they're hurting. And when that happens, if you've built a trust relationship, you can tell them how much Jesus cares. Remember, you've got to be a credible witness. But that's when you can tell them the hope that you have. Mark Middleberg wrote a book some time ago called contagious Christians. And there's a letter in his book that I absolutely love. I thought I'd read it to you as we come to a close this morning. It goes like this. This is a letter from a new believer to the guy that helped him come to Christ. 
when we first met, I discovered you in, with a warmth and a vulnerability and a lack of pretense that really impressed me. I saw a thriving spirit in you, no signs of internal stagnation. I could tell you were a growing person on the inside, and I like that. I saw a strong sense of self-esteem, not based on the fluff of self-help books, but on something deeper. I saw that you lived by your convictions, not by convenience or selfish pleasures, and I'd never met anybody like that before. I found that you listened to me. You didn't judge me outright. You tried to understand me. You sympathized with me, and you demonstrated kindness, not just to me, but, but to others as well, and that really impressed me. I found myself wanting what you have. Now that I'm a Christian, I want to tell you that I am grateful beyond words for how you lived your life out in front of me. Thank you for being a contagious Christian. The truth is, most people who come to Christ do so because somebody was a contagious Christian in their life. Is that true? Is it true? Is it true for us? I actually ran across a survey some time ago. Church Growth Institute surveyed 14,000 active Christians, and here's the stats they come up with. Let's see how many... Uh, how, how we compare with, with this survey, this national survey, okay? Uh, so the question is, how many of you came to Christ when somebody knocked on your door? Anybody? Cold knock on the door, you came to Christ, okay? 1% according to this survey. How many came to Christ in a Sunday school class? Okay, 4% according to this study. How many came to Christ at an evangelistic crusade, like a Billy Graham crusade? My father came to Christ watching Billy Graham on television. That's how he came to Christ. But there were a whole lot of people in his life that led up to that point. How many of you say a pastor led you to Christ? Anybody? A few of you? Okay, 5% according to this survey. How many of you say, well, I just walked into a church on my own one day, met Jesus? Anybody? 2%, okay, 2% according to this survey. How many of you say a church offered a program that, it, that caught your attention and drew you in? You found Christ there. Okay, 3% according to this one. How many of you would say that a friend or a relative was instrumental in you coming to Christ? Look around the room, people. 84% according to this study. Make a list. Make sure it includes some people who need good news. Build a bridge by listening and caring. And include your church family. You don't have to do this alone. Jesus didn't teach the disciples how to fish with hooks. He taught them how to fish with nets. We call it invest and invite. And so here at Community at, at, at the bridge, bridge Princeton, we believe, start to say Community Church because that's true there too. Uh, we believe with everything in us that if you will bring an unsaved person here and they'll start building relationships with people here, you know what's going to happen? They're going to want what we got. They're going to meet Jesus. So use your church family. Let your church family be a part of it. I got to close. Jesus is our role model. He gave it to us. Let's look at it in closing. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 and 6. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who's in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. When Jesus saw the people that were rejecting him, what happened? 
He was moved with compassion. I'll say it again. You will not move out there until you are moved in here. God, break my heart by what breaks yours. But what was the real problem that Jesus faced? What's the real problem that we face? It's a labor shortage. What was Jesus' solution to the labor shortage? What does the verse say? It was pray. Pray the Lord of the harvest who wants the harvest to be gathered that he will send forth laborers into that harvest. Hear me, guys. The bridge is not just a great place to come to church, not just a place to come and and experience God and, and hear the word of God taught. It's not just a place to meet some nice peoples. We are the laborers that Jesus is calling to go out. You'll see a sign as you leave our doors this morning. The church has left the building. Go be the church. Can we close this morning by praying that prayer that Jesus challenged us to pray? We're going to open the altars in just a moment, and it may well be that you need to come and and establish your own relationship with Christ. The opportunity's here. We'd love to help you. But for you that are part of this church family, you have a following, a relationship with Jesus Christ. Would you join me in that prayer this morning? Father, we look around. We realize the fields are white under harvest. Everywhere we go, in the workplace, in the school, on the sports fields, in the shopping centers, in the streets, thousands of people who desperately need Jesus. And you love every one of them. So our commitment this morning, Lord, is because you love them, help us to love them. Because they matter to you, would you help us to realize they should matter to us? And would you send us as laborers into that field to gather that harvest? We'll thank you for the incredible joy that will come when we meet someone, share with someone, share our hope with someone who finds that hope for themselves. At the end of the day, we're just simply praying, here am I, send me. And we're praying, Lord, let our church be the church of beautiful feet. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said together, amen.